Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this podcast series. And in today's conversation, we're going to discuss Brexit. It's been three years since the UK withdrew from the European Union agreements. Why did they do it? What challenges have they faced? And what has been the impact of Brexit, both on the UK and the EU? You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Joining me today is Sarah Murray, the International Managing Director at the Conference Board. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Steve. Yeah. So, Sarah, just for, you know, we have some listeners who are very sophisticated and and know the intricate details of all this and others that don't. But so, you know, let's just uh, start by describing what happened with Brexit uh, and when did this go into effect and what's changed now? Sure. So um, the UK voted to leave the EU by 52% leave to 48% remain in a referendum in June 2016. And the campaign message that the country wanted to take back control of its borders money and laws really resonated with voters. So if you think about that, that's nearly seven, over seven years ago uh, that that vote took place. And uh, in January, 31st of January 2020, the UK left under the terms of a negotiated divorce deal, but there was a transition period. And then in December 2020, there was a last minute agreement to avoid this no deal scenario, which would be the worst situation for both sides until finally on the 31st of December 2020, that transition period expired and the terms of the UK's new life outside of the EU came into force on the 1st of January 2021. Now, this is the first time that the EU bloc lost a member and the UK is now considered a third country for the EU so it means it has new customs and trade regulations it's created additional bureaucracy for businesses on both sides and most importantly the UK gave up access to the single market and the customs unit union if you don't mind me giving a little bit of context of like how how did we get there I think it might just help to kind of set the scene and if you think about during that period so 2015 2016 trust in government was really low um we'd had the 2015 16 bombings if you remember in paris and in brussels uh the handling of the iraq war was not something that the uk um population was proud of the uk government we had syrian refugees coming into Europe and a real big misunderstanding about the difference between refugees and uh, immigration. If you remember, Scotland did a referendum in 2014 and they lost that referendum for independence. And that meant at the time that the Conservative Party leader was quite cocky in thinking, you know, if I put a referendum to the UK, I'm I'm sure we can win. And they did that because of the threat of UKIP. So this rising nationalist sentiment in the country and, you know, populism was really um, on the rise. And for decades, the Conservative Party has always had this issue of Europe. You know, there's always been a split in the party of 
hardliners wanting to leave and remain as it affected Thatcher, it affected John Major, it's affected uh, Cameron. We've had four prime ministers since Brexit. So, you know, it's a big issue. And if anything, it's about the Conservative Party trying to deal with this hard right issue rather than, you know, what's in the national interest. Yeah. So let's so let's pause there. So so you have this situation where the UK and the countries on the continent were separate. Yeah. With the creation of the EU, the UK joined that, which which then made it one trading block, but also then they went beyond the trading block and they wanted to pass laws from Brussels, unelected officials in Brussels, electing and making uh, making laws that then applied to UK citizens, which caused a little bit of a friction because you've got yeah. these people in Brussels telling the people in the UK what to do. And then there was the whole currency thing where, you know, eventually uh, the, the notion was that the UK would give up the pound sterling and move to the euro and that that caused friction and, and concern as well so that i i think so that was part of it yes we had the people who wanted to be part of all of that and people who said no we want to be you know we want to be a sovereign nation right yeah indeed and um you know the the real issues of the lever camp was to your point it's about this principle that decisions about the uk should be taken in the UK. It was also about, you know, how to regain control of immigration, laws, borders. Um, and they were also, um, you know, had an issue with if you remain in the EU, you would have no choice on how the EU decided to expand its membership. And this was a big sticking point because if you remember the early 2000s, there was this massive process of EU enlargement where all these Eastern European countries joined the union and under the principles of the free movement of people, goods, capital, and services, a lot of EU workers moved to the UK and took jobs in low-skilled kind of areas. And in, you know, people that were less educated felt that they were um, having to now compete with these uh, workers. So there was a lot of tension um, that kind of came from that. Okay. So the vote happened uh, seven years ago, and you know this was. I mean, mathematically, the, the levers won. I mean, it was 52 to 48, but that's not, I mean, that's pretty close. I mean, to to say that we're going to throw this whole thing up in the air, you know, by 2% was a, was a you know, it, it, it was really very, very, very close. But there were big differences around the UK in terms of the opinion, right? So you had some people, yeah. some areas, and so it, it broke out geographically, which then raises the question for those of us who, we're not, you know, who did not grow up in the UK, um, you know, it's very confusing. What's the difference between what's called the Commonwealth, what's called Britain, what's called Great Britain, and what's called the United Kingdom? So if you could just explain a little bit about the geography to those of us who are not as familiar, and then how do each of those pieces yeah. have, you know, what is their view of Brexit? Yeah. So interesting. So the Commonwealth, is a group of about 54 nations and that evolved out of the former British Empire in 1949. So there's, you know, they meet regularly and they talk about shared economic development, trade, democracy, cultural exchange. And the, the, the Leave camp felt very strongly that this Commonwealth would be a greater opportunity to them than the EU because of historical ties, shared language, similar legal tr traditions, but also because they 
some of those nations, their growth was at 4% versus the EU's 2%, right? So, so that was a big kind of factor in their argumentation for the Leave campaign. Um, Britain, Great Britain um, is a term for England, Wales and Scotland, but the one that is, is the political entity uh, is the United Kingdom, which comprises of Northern Ireland, England, Wales and Scotland. It has a government in London and then Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have their devolved powers and their devolved um, governments. So then when you then look at, okay, so what were the results and, and, and how did, you know, all the differences kind of play out? Um, I think the results point to a really divided country and I'm going to explain regional differences, age, education, um, town versus city and, and, and race. But on the regional differences, Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain and they're generally, you know, more prosperous, well-educated professionals with economies linked to the EU. England and Wales voted to leave, um, and especially those regions with like high levels of deprivation, low levels of education, and my point about high migration from Eastern Europe, they were the ones, you know, to vote to leave. Interestingly, the older the voter, the more likely to leave. The majority of those on a pension and retired would leave. The younger the vote remain. Full-time, part-time workers remain, not working, leave. Um, those with university degrees and above remain. Those with what we would call GCSE qualifications, so just up to 16 years old, would vote to leave. What I think is also really interesting is when you look at race, the majority of white voters, and this really kind of came from England, they voted to leave. So it was a real outlet for a lot of nationalism in England that led to this result. If you were Asian, if you were African, you would vote to remain. Um, so some really kind of interesting uh, results there where we're now in a situation where if you think from a US perspective, the UK is no longer that gateway for the US to Europe. Um, you know, in the EU, uh, or UK businesses have, you know, had to kind of move operations now to the continent if they want to continue um, because they need to avoid all this red tape. Um, they want smooth, just-in-time just supply chains, which they just can't get because of this Brexit um, divorce. And um, I think business didn't like it. They voiced uh, at the time that they didn't like it. They still don't like it. They were told by the Leave campaign to shut up and they were dismissed. Um, and what was interesting was the Conservative Party, which was historically pro-business, um, almost came more ideological because, again, it was about this hard right faction and, and, and dealing with that rather than, you know, what's in the national interest. Yeah, and to simplify the parties, it's Labour and Tory, Tory being uh, the more conservative pro-business traditionally um, and stereotypically in labor being more, um, you know, more left of center yeah. um, and so forth. And so, okay. So one, one area you did not mention is the Republic of Ireland. Can you just talk about, uh, about Ireland? Because we're going to, we, we also have the issue then about the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So I think this needs a little bit of historical explanation if you if you don't mind me just stepping back because it can get very technical and, and complicated. 
So I think what's interesting is the UK and Ireland joined the EU at the same time in the 1970s. So the significance is that their history was twinned. Now, Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, but on the island of Ireland, shares a border with Ireland. And in 1998, there was this Good Friday Agreement that we will all recall that ended years of violence between separatists and unionists, you know, those wanting to join Ireland and those wanting to remain in the UK. But in that Good Friday Agreement, nothing can get in the way of a hard border. So by both members joining the EU, um, that was solved because there was frictionless trade between them. Um, and so when the UK left the EU, the issue was, well, how do you treat Northern Ireland? It cannot have a hard border. The absence of a hard border is a symbol of the peace process. So um, the Northern Ireland Protocol um, was um, put together, which meant that checks had to come on UK goods into Northern Ireland. And the unionists were not happy because they felt um, that they weren't being treated in the same way as the UK. Massive deadlock. If you remember, even the US froze talks with the UK on a trade deal until this Northern Ireland protocol uh, was resolved. And what we've just seen yesterday is um, a deal has been struck between the EU and the UK. It did get through. And... Um, it means, well, it's taken a seven years, it's taken four prime ministers, but it now means less checks. And it now means that the EU and the UK have reset that relationship. It's called the Windsor Framework. Um, and I think um, everyone's hoping that it will bring back grown up politics and enable right. the UK and Europe to talk again. Right. I think, and, and so it, it's interesting because this border issue between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland on the island of Ireland, which yes. is, um, is what became the, you know, stuck in the craw here of the, the Brexit process um, because of the, you know, the former troubles, as they were called, between the Northern Ireland folks and the Republic of Ireland and, and the peace settlement it required, as you said, an open border. So there, they took down all the border checks. It, it's wide open. I mean, you can drive right straight through from, yeah. you know, from one side to the other. It's and and they're more economically um, and culturally integrated. So this was a very important piece of it. And but yet, Northern Ireland's part of the UK, and so therefore you have this whole different situation and. Um, and I think everybody was keen not to, you know, not to stimulate more troubles or a return of the troubles through this whole Brexit process. And it's it's ironic, though, but you have to understand yeah. the, you know, the history of, you know, of the of the empire down to the Commonwealth, down to all of this in order to to understand, you know, the pieces here. So therefore, you come back to. You know this geography is it's it's relatively small in the whole scheme of things but it is the differences are very very important i mean you have the scots who you know have been rattling about on about uh independence you know for 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 scotland and so this all of this kind of triggered these nationalist and regional and cultural um you know, culture centric um, tendencies here. And, it, you know, it, it's it's a troubling time when that happens. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And and again, um, since Brexit, 
the, the Scotland tried again to profit from the fact that Scotland voted to remain in the EU. Those nationalists wanted to take that opportunity and go for another independence referendum. And I think what's been interesting is the UK Supreme Court has since ruled that they cannot have another referendum in, unless London approve. Um, and I think the fact that this deal has just, um, you know, got over the line uh, with Northern Ireland, one hopes that at least that kicks the can down the road about those kind of conversations. But indeed, that what this did was just open up and show how divided uh, the United Kingdom is. Um, and, you know, that's 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 something that is, is not an easy one to figure out overnight. No. And um, now it, it looked like, you know, even though this vote was was taken seven years ago, the the internal polling around the country suggested that if the vote was taken again, it would not pass. And in fact, the remain uh, group would win. And so there was some talk about taking another vote and and changing the decision here. Where does all that stand? Yeah, I, I do not think there is an appetite at all on the UK side or even on the EU side um, to rejoin right now. I think the UK are going to be tied into the situation for decades. I would say at least 20 years until those older voters um, are, not, are not there. I think the UK needs time to reflect. What I think is interesting though, Steve, I don't know if you heard about this, but in February, there was an extraordinary and secret cross-party summit held at Ditchley Park. The Leavers, the Remainers, business, diplomats, all there to address the failings of Brexit and how to remedy them in the national interest. And a real acknowledgement that so far the UK has not found its way, that Britain's losing out, that Brexit is not delivering, the economy is weak. And they were really there to kind of talk about how can we have a conversation with the EU about changes to the UK-EU trade and cooperation agreement. And so that that is quite remarkable. Yeah, remarkable, but quite necessary. I mean, you know, you're, we're running, um, what, 10% inflation most recently in the UK. Yeah. Just, you know, the the central bank is raising the interest rates quite precipitously. It's, it's the UK probably is in a recession, if not... Uh, if not at the exact moment, it, it it's everybody forecasts it will be. So it's it's not a, a good time economically. But but you, you know you, you have to you have to go again go back to history because the, these the the older generation, the boomers and older, are the group that remember World War II. And you know there's you know that 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 in some ways is is ancient history, but in some ways wasn't that long ago. And so yeah. you still have this friction between the continent and players on the continent and and the UK and so you can see how they want to retain you know they want to retain their their national integrity in in all of this rather than you know handing this over so this is what you're saying it's it's probably going to take a generation and maybe two to try to you know allow this time you know uh and to pass but in the meantime then it really means this has been a one way trip yeah indeed yeah so therefore the trade agreements that follow on to you know to uh, to you know an integrated economy become that much more important so so you know and the initial ones you know the eu you know brexit says 
you know, the UK says we're, we're leaving. The the continent says, well, okay, goodbye. And so, you know, we're not really incented to do a great trade agreement here because, you know, a little bit of hard feelings, I, I guess. Um, so, but that needs to also have some time for them to work out and to continue to modify, which is why this this summit here that, that just happened is is so important because it needs because the various factions and groups in the UK need to get together and be of at least enough of one mind that that you know that 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 the government can negotiate with the EU. Yeah. Well, yes, but I would say that the trade deals that have been struck, um, you know, so there was one with Japan. That's now been labelled a failure. Uh, trade has actually decreased between the UK and Japan. There was a trade deal with Australia, very much labelled as it benefited Australia. It didn't benefit uh, the UK. There are a lot of rollover trade deal agreements under the old EU terms that the UK kind of took on. Again, that points about you know the Commonwealth opportunity. Um, you know, if 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 the EU finds it hard to strike a deal with India which you know, has a very protected economy, but you know, EU is a large block. What hope will the UK have of being able to do that as a smaller entity? So I think it's going to be very difficult. And you know, the UK do not have the largest negotiating hand. They won't if, if the talks um, recover or restart with the US. So I think the bubble has burst a bit about you know, this, this global Britain slogan that was painted around. Um, I'm not sure how how much opportunity is really there. You mentioned the U.S. and that's interesting because you know following Brexit, it was the view was that perhaps the U.K. would look west rather than looking east, and that you know look west to North America, including Canada, uh, part of the Commonwealth, and uh, and of course the U.S. and Mexico. And so there were there were some predictions that uh, you know there's the uh, uh, you know, the former NAFTA agreement, USMCA agreement, that they thought perhaps the UK would join. That has not happened. And, and it really hasn't gone anywhere, has it? No, not at all. And this is the point of, you know, the ability of the UK to go out on its own and yeah. strike these deals. And the reality just is, um, you know, a lot of the diplomats and a lot of the civil servants are still working incredibly hard on trying to unpick from the EU um, you know, there's there's years and years of integration that's taking up a huge amount of time. Trade deals also take a huge amount of time. And you also need the skills within the civil servant to actually strike trade deals. And in the past uh, 40 years, it was the EU that did all of those trade deals. So, you know, you've also got a skills gap, um, you know, going on. Um, so, yes, the reality is it's a lot harder than originally expected. Now, you know, there there was part of this nationalist view which which uh, resulted in brexit was the desire for separate currencies and the pound sterling uh, to retain to retain the pound sterling and not not go over to the euro talk about the importance of that and and what were they what were the fears of of integrating with the euro as a common currency so i just want to remind listeners that the uk enjoyed a unique and privileged position in the eu they had an opt out of the euro currency. So they never adopted it. They continued to use the pound. Um, and one of their main arguments in getting that opt out was they wanted, you know, they had this desire to retain control over monetary policy, have a separate currency rather than be bound by the Eurozone's monetary policies. But the tabloids 
kept stating tensions in the UK that they would have to join the euro. Legally, they always had this opt-out. So the case um, also for joining the euro was quashed, especially after the euro crisis. And so I would say that this, this issue was more a symptom of the tabloid hostility that led to the Leave result. And let's not forget that British tabloid hostility to the EU has been going on for decades. Right. And then, you know, there was the whole concern around Greece and, you know, the, the yeah. and of course, Italy and some of these nations that uh, that ran up huge sovereign debt and, and hence it weakened the euro. And, you know, the control of that monetary policy is so integral to the health of the of the economy. And you see that now what. When it's standalone, it's the same. You know, it's the it's the flip side of that. It's not. It's the euro is actually stronger at the moment uh, than the pound. But uh, they were worried about the opposite at the at the, that point in time. So, the, you know, it's all kind of it's like a fabric that's woven here. It's all all these things are are interrelated, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Is has Brexit been fully implemented, or are they? You know, you're talking about the bureaucrats still trying to to work through these things from a trade standpoint, but. But in the UK, I mean, is it day to day life, business, uh, and so forth? Is it is it pretty much Im, uh, pretty much implemented? No, I mean, in the sense that at the end of this year, there's the um, EU repeal law bill. Um, so this means that any uh, EU laws um, that have not been reviewed will be, you know, automatically kind of uh, removed. That, that you can imagine, there's a huge amount of work that needs to to happen to kind of go through. All of that, because if you just remove them, there's there's a lot of you know a vacuum that's created, and um you know there are some concerns that in doing that protections that have been put in place because of Europe for worker protections will be removed, and that the UK um, is not a fairer place to do business. So uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on that, uh, and you can imagine that that yeah just just the scale of that, of like 40 years of work uh, still needs to, to be done. So um, it's not finished. And I think for years there will be, uh, you know, the consequences are still um, working their way through. Right. And and this creates uncertainty in the economy, uncertainty in planning, uncertainty in, in capital expenditures and business and so forth. But, you know, it's ironic because as you were saying, that it was the lower socioeconomic classes that voted to leave, in other words, to to retain the nat more of the national identity. And yet the weakness created in the economy disproportionately hurts yes. those people. Yeah. But the problem was, again, you know, during, during the campaign, I don't think um, there were some erroneous claims on the leave side and on the remain side. If you remember, there was more fear mongering than um, talking up the benefits of the EU. And if you remember, the UK also told the EU, stay out of this. We don't want you uh, to communicate the benefits. So, you know, in all of this, I think there has been a lack of understanding about the, you know, what the EU brought to people in the UK. And, um, you know, it's, it's trying to put a very complex issue um, into a binary question via this referendum with no checks, no safeguards that, you know, has led us to, to where we are today. 
Now, another another impact has been on on businesses. I think um, you know you, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that that London was really viewed as the capital of Europe from a you know certainly from a finance standpoint and but also from a you know multinational business standpoint. And that that's changed, and you see a lot of flight from London. Yeah. Um, with the banks to Frankfurt and but also multinationals have have left the UK or, you know, or moved their headquarters or, you know, created counterweights on the continent as well. So that that all has hurt as well. Absolutely. I mean, there's been a huge hit. Um, it's been I mean, there's been huge issues um, for for the UK economy and also for businesses big concerns around labor shortages and supply chains. If you remember the Dory, the, the, um, the Dover lorry queues, um, yeah. that was, that was a big shock right at the beginning. Um, and where are all the workers to deal with this, um, you know, labor shortage, our own, our own EU labor market report, you know, talks about this, that the UK has more acutely this labor shortage problem because it now doesn't have access to all of these EU workers. Um, and that's not something, you know, even with business trying to provide higher wages or trying to improve conditions to attract British workers, all of that is in vain and they've still got the problem. So um, it's been particularly um, damaging. Uh, we've seen inflation. I think, you know, some of that is linked to higher food prices. But overall, yeah, UK and and EU imports have significantly declined. Many many smaller companies have just stopped trading altogether, or like you said, firms just move their headquarters onto the continent. So again, that's a big loss. Yeah, big loss, big okay. loss for sure. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience? I think you know, as as I as I said earlier, the fact that there's been this cross-party summit, I, I do think that that's um, extraordinary. That there's not going to be talk of an immediate, you know, return to the EU. But what's interesting is, you know, on the one side, the Leavers don't want Brexit to be seen as a failure, and on the other, you've got a Labour Party that see this as a real threat to the success of any future government unless problems such as increased trade friction can be addressed. So I think there'll be a lot of behind closed doors talks about how to ensure the UK gets the best that it can out of this relationship. So there's there's a return to a bit more pragmatism and that's that's a good thing. So I suppose one could file this whole exercise into uh, into the file of be careful what you wish for. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. Sarah Murray, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening into CEO Perspectives. Every week I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in geopolitics, economics, public policy, ESG, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends, with everyone across border. I know they're going to want to listen. I'm Steve Odlin, and this podcast has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.